If you brought a Bible along, turn it to 1 Samuel chapter 30, 1 Samuel chapter 30, and um, I'm going to read uh, the first uh, 15 cha- uh, verses of, of uh, 1 Samuel 30, and I'll remind you once again, we believe the Bible is the Word of God written, the only infallible rule of faith and practice. Um, and um, this little sermon, little thought, um, kind of a one point with many applications, maybe type message. Um, and uh, let me remind you again, we believe the Bible is the Word. Father, open us once again to your Word. Open your Word to us. Teach us, disciple us under the banner of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, help us. Forgive us, fill us, and use a wretched, sinful, crooked stick to show the narrow way of the Lord Jesus. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So let me give you just a little background to this passage. And um, um, David, at this point, it's going to be about King David. He is what they call the king designate. Um, Back in chapter 15... Um, God told, listen carefully, God told King Saul to destroy the Amalekites. Listen, remember Amalekites, 1 Samuel 15, God said, go and conquer them and destroy them all as my judgment on them for the way they treated my people when they were coming out of Egypt, uh, coming here to the promised land. And Saul didn't do it, and God rejected Saul from being king. At that point, in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, God says, I'm sorry that I made you king and and all of that. And and in chapter 16, David is anointed, uh, but he doesn't begin to serve. He's anointed king and becomes king designate, but Saul is still functioning as the king. Then in chapter 17, David kills a man called Goliath. Uh, Goliath came, listen carefully, Goliath came from a city called Gath, G-A-T-H, Gath, and and David slew him. And and in chapters 18 and following, various things happen. Uh, David is opposed by Saul. Jonathan, the son of Saul, knows that David will become king, and he and David become very close friends. Uh, David gathers a ragtag army, army, and in chapter 27, uh, very close to this passage, David has to flee to the Philistines. That is to say, he is so opposed by Saul that he has to flee to the Philistines, the arch enemies of the people of God uh, at this time. Uh, He flees to a Philistine king called Achish, who is the king of a place called Gath, where Goliath is from. You can't make this stuff up. It's really amazing. He flees. When he flees, he flees to to Achish, who's the king of Gath. And and Achish, um, just a little, if I had a a map, I'd show you. I'm going to have a make-believe map. If you go to Gaza, which you hear a lot about in the news today, Gaza, and you go to Beersheba and you draw a line there, about halfway in between and a little above, there's a town called Ziklag, Z-I-K-L-A-G. We're going to read about it. And Achish gave David uh, Ziklag, 
which is to say David was going to protect the southern flank, if you will, of the Philistines from uh, attack by other nations, okay? And, and um, the, the story in verse 29, all of this, to, you, you really need to understand the context to really get this passage. And so in, in chapter 29, the Philistines are going north to do battle with King Saul. And they are up at a place called Aphek, A-P-H-E-K. We'll read about that too. And they're up at a place called Aphek, which is just north of the, um, the Tel Aviv airport today. It's just north of the Ono Plain. And, and they're up there at, at Aphek, and they're going to go on up to Jezreel, and that's where they'll have this battle. And the Philistine kings look at, at Achish. Achish is one of the Philistine kings. And they look at Achish and said, what's David doing here? What's his army doing here? We'll, we, won't, we will not allow them to go to battle uh, with us. They may turn against us and fight for their ethnic uh, kinsmen, okay? So Achish has to go to David and say, sorry, man, the, the, the other kings won't have it. You got to go home. You got to go back to Ziklag, which is about 50 to 75 miles south, okay? So they head back south, and they're heading back when the story begins, okay? They're heading back. They, 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 they've gone up to Aphek. They're with the army. They said, no, you can't go. They're heading back. This is where the story starts. So in verse 1 of chapter 30, Now when David and his men came to Ziklag, so they got all the way back on the third day. So in three days, they walked uh, 20 miles a day, we'll say, to get home. And they're thinking about home cooking and wives and children, and uh, they're ready to get home, okay? So when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negeb and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the wife of Nabal of Carmel, and David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each of his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Pesor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the Besor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. 
And they gave him bread and ate, and he ate, and gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We made a raid against the Negeb of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negeb of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. Amen. The grass withers and flowers fade, but God's word won't fade. It'll abide forever and forever. The story continues. They go down and whoop up on the Amalekites, as we might say. They get their wives and children back, and, um, and, and that part of the story has a good ending. I want to look particularly at the end of verse 6, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David is alone. David is alone in a very significant way as this passage uh, unfolds. Uh, he's alone because uh, he's had to run from um, uh, uh, King Saul. Uh, he's alone particularly here because um, the people want to blame him because they're, he's the leader and they want to really blame God. By the way, if you want a title for this message, i got three. You can take your pick, okay? What to do when life goes against you, or in the face of a frowning providence, or the loneliness of leadership. And here he's the leader, and here he is quite alone. And we all know what it's to be alone in various ways, um, in various times, and uh, so I think there's an immediate connection for all of us, is there not? Um, by the way, did you notice that these Amalekites that attacked in verse 1, that made a raid on Ziklag, are the same Amalekites that God told Saul back in chapter 15, you should destroy those people. And there's a lesson there, but I won't take time to draw it out, right? They didn't destroy when they could, and they had this problem later. Okay, so David's alone. Is he the only leader of God's people that's ever been alone? And the answer is certainly not, right? I mean, you think of Moses right off. Moses is up on the mountain. Joshua's with him. And they come down and they've made a golden calf and they've made a mess of it. And, and if, if Moses does not intercede for the people, God said, I'm going to destroy them. Get out of the way, Moses. I'll start over with you. And Moses said, God, you can't do that. Think of what the Egyptians will say about, about you if you destroy your people. And, and if Moses had not interceded the way Jesus interceded later for us, then they would have been destroyed. And you look at the lives of the prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, just to name a few. They, they are alone uh, as they represent God uh, in the face of many problems. Job was pretty much alone. Even his wife said to him, curse God and die, right? Paul, when he opposed Peter at Galatia, was very much alone. And many of us have been alone, uh, not just lonely, but separated and isolated. We're made in the image 
of, of a social being, a social God, the triune God, and, and it's not good to be alone. And, and so what I want to do is just draw some, some lessons out of this, and um, if the shoe fits, you wear it, okay? Um, all right, here's the first one. Uh, David did not try to respond to the situation in his own strength and wisdom. I'll say something in a minute about how he sought the Lord and, and how he consulted God through Abiathar the priest. But for the per first thing, I want to make the point that he, he did not uh, approach then in his, this in his own strength and wisdom. Uh, he did indeed need strength and he did indeed need wisdom because his wives have been captured, because the people are thinking about stoning him, because his children are gone, because the men are enraged against him. But he did not look to himself, and he did not look to his own wisdom to get him out of this mess. And, and often we do, quite frankly. And, and often, uh, even when we should go, we don't go until there's some, something big confronting us. We should go sooner. Um, my hunch is if I said, uh, how many of you have tried to handle things in your own strength, everybody would have something to say, right? Um, here's the second one. Second lesson, question, Corona, this. David had faith. David had the faith that the Lord was his God. Look at verse 6b. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Now, the, the, the phrase the Lord or Yahweh is... When, 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 when Moses said to God or asked God in Exodus 3, who are you? He said, well, I'm Yahweh. I am that I am. He is the personal, the infinite personal God who had revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. And, and this God is, he's saying, his God. He strengthened himself, even in the face of a frowning providence, even in the face of, of, of these problems and the threat that he, they might stone him, he takes it that the Lord is his God. He takes it that God is committed to him by covenant to be his God. That God has made a commitment to David that I want you to be mine, and David has made a commitment to God, I will be yours. David could no longer say, my city, Ziklag, my people, my possessions, my children, but he could say, my God. He is my God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And David is seeking God in the faith that God is there even when things don't go the way you wished. One writer on this passage said, tears last for the night, but joy comes in the morning and the bottom falls out in the afternoon. <laughs> That's what's happened to David here. Think about it, okay? David was pursued by Saul. Saul had tried to kill him numerous times. He had to flee to the Philistines. He's been given Ziklag, then Ziklag gets attacked. His wives and his children are taken away. The people are thinking about stoning him. And still he has faith that the Lord 
is his God. There's a man in the church in Alabama I knew. He was an older man. When I say older, older than me, uh, even at the time. And he was in what became his last illness. And he was in the ICU. And uh, I don't know how it is here, but in the, in the deep south, a pastor can get in an ICU anytime there's not treatment going on. And two in the morning or two in the afternoon or whenever. And I had time to visit to go see Norman because I wasn't sure Norman knew Jesus. And it was getting to the point in life where nothing matters but knowing Jesus. You know what I mean? You leave it all behind and, and, and you go. And, and if you know Jesus, you go to the right place. And if you don't, you don't. And so I went to see Norman. And I was all geared up to talk to him about salvation and the gospel and Jesus and his need and everything. And I walked in the room and he said, Pastor, been thinking about that 23rd Psalm. I've been reading and praying the 23rd Psalm all my life. He said, but pastor, think about it. The Lord is my shepherd. He's not just a shepherd. He's not just the shepherd. He's my shepherd. And he just went on from that. And I was thinking, thank you, Jesus. This man is professing his faith using the 23rd Psalm. Think of the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still or quiet waters. He restores my... You can, it's a confession of faith is what it is. And Norman was confessing his faith. And in this passage, David is confessing his faith when life had gone against him. Do you have that kind of faith? Do you have that kind of faith? If you do, you should thank God for his indescribable gift... And if the answer is no, then why not now? Why not ask him? There's no better time. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Thirdly, David asked, for God, asked his God for wisdom about what to do. You'll notice in verses 7 and following, he inquired of the Lord. He had done the same thing previously back in chapter 23, but I won't take us there in the interest of time. It seems to have been a habit of David's. And he inquired of the Lord, listen carefully, listen, look at the word. David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. Now an ephod was used to seek guidance and wisdom uh, uh, from God. That's what an ephod was for, is to seek divine counsel. And Abiathar is a priest. So David sought the priest... And the priest had an ephod. This goes all the way back to Exodus when the ephod was made that the high priest wore. And he says to the high priest, find out, hey, should, should we pursue? Yes. Okay, so... We'll, and, and he got a lot of other information. It's not, not germane to the point I want to make. What should we do? Well, we do the same thing, don't we? We, we go to... The high priest, we don't use an effort, of course, but we go to God through the high priest. Who's the high priest? Jesus. He's the great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. I was reading it over there. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So we seek God 
through the great high priest Jesus in prayer. We seek the wisdom of God in, in his word. And, and additionally, this is tangential to this text, but it's true from other texts, uh, there's wisdom in many counselors. Then fourthly, David experienced a helpful and encouraging providence in the midst of all this. And that's the story of this Egyptian um, in the open country in verses 11 to 15. Um, David, um, they found that, by the way, this story is told where um, we find things out before David found those things out. And so you have to, to really get the feel of what's going on. You have to think, how did this evolve for David? For instance, the first two verses say uh, that it's the Amalekites who did it. They made a raid. Um, they took captive the women and all in it. The reason they took the women and children captive and didn't kill them is that they're valuable. Uh, they're going to sell them probably. And David knows that. Excuse me. David assumes that. Okay, my wives and children are not dead. Everybody else assumed the same thing because they're going to be sold into slavery. It's, it's a valuable thing, okay? But we, you have to think through it again to get, get the flow as it develops. But, but this is this sweet providence. So, I mean, I've been down in that country down there uh, kind of south. They would have gone south because everything north would have been uh, kind of alien territory to the Amalekites. And I'll tell you, there's not much down there. I mean, I, I, this is a true story. I was down there in uh, spring of 17 or early, late winter of 17, and it's so remote, there's signs that says, watch out for the camels crossing the road. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. This is remote territory. And so they're wandering around down in this territory, and they're looking for their wives and children. Where are they going to find them? I'm telling you, there's a lot of places to hide down there. Lots of places to hide. And lo and behold, in the sweet province of God, there's this Egyptian who's been jettisoned because he's sick. He hadn't had anything to eat or drink for three days. They nurse him back to health, and he basically says, they went that away, <laughs> you know? And, and the rest happens, all right? Now, this is a great providence. It's a great providence. And it doesn't always happen, providences like this. But it does happen, and when it happens, it's very encouraging and very helpful. In um, two years and a month ago, I had total knee replacement on my left knee, and so I show up at the surgery center at O-Dark 30, and, and uh, they bring in this, and you've got this pre-op nurse. And the pre-op nurse says, uh, you don't speak like I do. Where are you from? In so many words. Said, well, I'm from Alabama. What'd you do? Well, I pastored a church. Well... Do you know anybody here? Well, yeah, I was the supply. I was the interim pastor at Evergreen Presbyterian Church. Evergreen Presbyterian Church. She said, "Are you Dr. Carter?" And I said, um, "Well, yeah, I am. As a matter of fact, uh, do you know me?" And said, "No, but I know somebody at Evergreen." So she takes a picture of the two up, you know, a selfie, and sends it to her nurse friend, and and sends it. But you know, and there's this is sweet providence, sweet providence, very encouraging at that point because you know. A surgeon friend told me one time years ago, he said, you should sell surgery, not buy it. <laughs> and I was buying it that day, you know, so I needed a little encouragement. All right, so let me tell you an, another one. These are provinces, and, and you may think what I'm about to tell you is, is, is laughable, and that's okay, but some of you won't, and you're the smart ones, okay? When Sally and I travel, we pray for angels. We pray for angels to show up when we need help or when things get really not good or just just an untoward 
circumstance. And, 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 you know, I mean, there's been many times I've said, Sally, we need an angel, you know. So we're, we're at, at a train platform in Peterborough, England, and it's a long story. We were traveling like Americans. We had too much luggage, and we had to get from one side of the trans, train plants form to the other, which means you've got to climb upstairs and across stairs and downstairs. And we got five. Our son was, had given us a bag to take home. We got five really big bags plus two carry-ons. And you, my wife's about 5'1". Okay, so you just can't do this. There's no way to do it. And I said, Sally, we need an angel. By that time, this massive guy comes up. I'm not kidding you, massive guy. Need a little help, buddy? Well, yeah, you know. He picks up one under his arm and another one and another one. Come on, you know. You say, well, that's just a coincidence. I'm a practicing Presbyterian, dear people. That's not a coincidence. That's a providence. I'll tell you another one. This is a true story. True story. I was teaching in a slum or ghetto, whatever you want to call it, in Kingston, Jamaica. And I was sick. And I felt awful. And um, I had a fever. I knew what, I won't go into details of what my sickness was, but I knew I, I, need, to take, I need to take some ibuprofen. I need two ibuprofen. And I've got two ibuprofen in my pocket. I'm thinking, yeah, I carry a pillbox. I've got ibuprofen in here. I just don't need them right now. And uh, so I'm thinking, two ibuprofen. But this was so long ago, you don't carry, nobody carried water bottles in the, that, those days, and I don't have a way to take a pill. And I prayed. And out of the blue, this is no joke, a lady sitting about where Angie's sitting gets up, goes to the back, and she walks down the side aisle, and she, you know, it's, if you've ever been to the islands, it's, it looks like, bug, we call it bug juice, you know, punch, you know what I'm talking about, they have in, the, in this was in, in the island, and she set it right there, and she turned around and walked back. And I thought, thank you, Jesus, you know, and I take the pills out, and, you know, and I looked for her afterwards. I couldn't find her. I wanted to thank her. Now, you know, you say, well, God doesn't do stuff like that. God is God, people. God is still alive and well on planet Earth. God does intervene. God does intervene. So here's a helpful and encouraging providence. Voila, they're out in the middle of the desert, and here's an Egyptian shows up. You'll experience those things too. You pray for them. David responded appropriately, this is fifth, to the wisdom he received. He acted he was not passive. This is difficult here. There are times when God says that we should wait upon the Lord. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in His word I hope my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. Yeah, I get it. And it's very difficult to know when we're supposed to wait and when we're supposed to be active. But obviously here, David needs to be active. He needs to take the, the wisdom He's gotten from approaching God through the high priest and put it into action and follow after the people. Presbyterians are very passive in my experience. Anyway, number six. This is not the only way to gain strength. Back in 1 Samuel 23, Jonathan, David's friend by covenant, this is a quote, Jonathan strengthened David's hand in God. 1 Samuel 23, 16. 
So it's not always the case we have to strengthen ourselves in the Lord our God. Sometimes God's people come and they strengthen us. Now we're not told how this happened back in 1 Samuel 23. Certainly part of it was that Jonathan was present. Certainly Jonathan would have reminded David of God's plan and promise that someday David would be king. But these things are the duties in the New Testament for brothers and sisters in Christ. We're to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. We're to comfort one another, 1 Thessalonians 4. We're to encourage and build up one another, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. But in chapter 30, Jonathan is not there. So David must strengthen himself in the Lord his God because David is alone. And there will be times, brothers and sisters, when you and I will have to do the same. Now I want you to fast forward to a place called Gethsemane. There's a man there named Jesus, and he's praying. He's about to be arrested. He's facing death square in the face. He needs strength. One of his disciples has already deserted him at the Last Supper, but he's got 11 left, and he tells the 11, come, let's go across the Kidron and Let's go to that olive grove where we usually pray. And when he gets there, he takes the three closest to him, Peter and James and John, and he says, come aside, guys, and let's pray together. In one sense, Jesus is not alone, but in another sense, he's very alone, isn't he? He wanted the prayer fellowship of his closest friends as he sought his father's face. He was seeking to strengthen himself in the Lord as God, just like David had done. But his friends finked out, and they went to sleep. Fast forward again, this time to a place called Golgotha. Jesus has been nailed to the cross. He's hanging there, he's in great pain, and death is near. The disciples are not even asleep now. The disciples are now deserters. His best friends have failed him. He is alone, except the women who watch from a distance. The crowd derides him. They taunt him. They tempt him to come down. He has come into his own, and his own have received him not. He needs the Lord God, his Father, and he cries out to his father, but for the first time, for the first time, get this, for the first time in all eternity past, his father is not there. His father is not there for him. In his hour of greatest need, the father failed to show, and Jesus is alone. He's truly alone. He's alone in a way that you and I and David and Ezekiel and Amos and all the others have never known. More than we have ever been, and by the grace of God, more than we will ever be. And I want to ask, as I close this, another question. Why is the Father not there? Why is the Father not responsive? 
And there are two questions, two responses. One is obvious and one is not quite as obvious, but both are good news. The Father does not respond because the sins of His people have been placed upon Jesus. My sins have been placed upon Jesus. If you have believed in Him, your sins were placed upon Jesus. God made, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And, and Habakkuk tells us that God is of purer eyes than to even look upon evil. That's what we sang in the second line of number five in the blue book. I pointed that out this morning. The Father's of purer eyes than to even look at evil. So that's one of the reasons why the Father's not responsive, because our sins have been put on Him, and He stinks to the Father. But the second reason, and I love this, the second reason is so that no true Christian will ever have to experience that kind of separation from God. Right? In any and every frowning providence, God is there with us. We are never alone. We are never separated from the source of strength and mercy. And that, my friends, is good news. Jesus holds His priesthood permanently because He continues forever. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. We have access to God through our great high priest, Jesus, just like David had access to God through Abiathar the priest who was a foreshadowing of Jesus. Jesus is the greater Abiathar, if you will. So when you're alone, when you're alone, when you're seeking to strengthen yourself in the Lord your God, go to God via your great high priest through Jesus. There you'll find strength to help in time of desperate need, and God will give it willingly. Draw near to God said James, and he will draw near to you. He is there, and he cares. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you were separated so that we never have to be separated. Thank you that our sins were placed upon you and your righteousness was placed upon us. And we pray in your name.